Hey, what's up, my friends? Welcome back to the Pilgrimage Podcast. My name is Joshua Luke Smith, and this is a space for the curious, creative, contemplative souls. It's good to be together again. We're venturing into the final episodes of this series that we've been on for the last seven weeks. The kingdom is yours. Before we get into that, just a couple things. I have new music out in the world. I dropped the first single from my debut album last month called Shine On. You can check that out and the music video, share it with your friends, put it up everywhere. That's how independent artists get known. I appreciate everyone that's been supporting the track. And if you want to help support and sustain this podcast, we don't have any outside advertising or marketing. This is a podcast from the people for the people. If you want to help sustain it, you can sign up to the subscription at thepilgrimage.co. I'm developing the platform right now to launch early next year where we're going to have more conversations with people beyond just myself, different insights about the spiritual path, the creative journey, opportunities for us that have engaged in this podcast to get to know each other more, which I'm super excited about. You can sign up at thepilgrimage.co. Follow us on Instagram at thepilgrimage.co. I'm so grateful for every single one of you that supports and every single one of you that listens. It's such a joy to get to do this. But without further ado, let's move on to episode eight of the kingdom is yours. Yes, 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 yes. Episode 8, man, I can't believe it. If you've been journeying with us these last few weeks, you know that we've been on this quest into this ancient scripture, this street sermon that Jesus gave over 2,000 years ago. We're surrounded by a small crowd. He gave what I call the manifesto for an abundant life. In the Gospels, Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life in abundance. And the word abundance is this Greek word, parisos, and it literally means that which exceeds what we anticipate, that which goes beyond our expectations. Could it be true that there's a life available to us that exceeds what we anticipate and expect our life could be? So that's what Jesus' promise is. And this teaching called the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, for me rings out like the declaration, the proclamation of what it is to live that life, how to access those deep and timeless truths that Jesus came to bring us. And if you've been on the road with us, you know that we're really having a conversation about what it means to be human, about what it actually means to live our lives presently and practically. Yes, there are lofty, profound, and poetic truths in this, But ultimately, if these episodes don't impact our Monday afternoons and our Thursday mornings, um, then we've missed it. The teachings of Jesus are incarnational. That's the theological word that means made flesh. The words become flesh, right? The words don't just stay as words on a piece of paper. The words move from the way we read them or hear them into our lives, infused in our actions and the way we think and the way that we see. And this particular line, this verse of the Beatitudes that we're going to hang around with today, I feel is like the word for 2020, the Beatitude for 2020, the scripture that has most impacted me and shaped me this year. And I first started really meditating on it back in um, March time, I think it was. And it really has carried me through the year. It's helped me make my way through some of the terrain that I haven't walked before. This year, because of horrific and unjust happenings 
we have confronted some of the systemic issues in our society that for too long we had dismissed. Back earlier this year, when George Floyd was murdered, it sparked a global reflection, one that I hope for you and for your society, the culture that you're in is still happening, but for some, you know, has come and gone. It sparked the opportunity to begin a conversation and begin a process within ourselves to reevaluate how we see the world and how we see each other, how we see one another in response to our race, in response to our culture. And the scripture that I'm looking at today has been so important to me this year in that process. So as I've done every single week, I'm going to read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, children of God, the daughters of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus had been prophesied about hundreds of years earlier. It was said that Jesus was coming, the prophets of old. And one of the names that was given to Jesus was the Prince of Peace. Jesus came at a time of massive civil unrest. Israel was under Roman occupation. And the people that he was speaking to were experiencing what it was to have the empire on their neck. You know, they were oppressed. I've talked about this in a previous episode. But if you were requested by a Roman soldier to carry his armor and all of his belongings, you just have to do it. Your whole life was disrupted by the imbalance of power that you were constantly being confronted by. But Jesus had been prophesied he would be the Prince of Peace. So when he came, there was an understanding that perhaps in his coming, in the Messiah coming, he would overthrow the empire. He would overthrow the system that was oppressing people and therefore create peace. And throughout Jesus' teaching, throughout his ministry, throughout his work, he constantly redefines what it means to live in peace, what it means to be someone who reorders the structure of society and the systems at work so that everyone Wherever you're from, whoever you are, has the opportunity to live a full and abundant life. He didn't do what everyone expected him to do. He did what he needed to do. He did a work deeper than what anyone was anticipating. There's a scripture in the book of Matthew. It's, it's, it's in other parts of the gospels, but in Matthew 21, we, we hear this story about Jesus going to the temple. And the temple is like the epicenter for religious worship and, and, 
sacrifice, the system of sacrifice was so ingrained in the culture of the time, this idea that you would sacrifice a living creature and in doing so, you would receive forgiveness from God, right? And he goes to the temple at a time where people are flocking into the city to sacrifice and receive forgiveness and penance and then go about their way. And it says he entered the temple and what he found in the temple was people buying and selling animals. And it's just this really crazy scripture that people have had so many different opinions about where Jesus, upon seeing what happens, he goes into this state of protest and he starts turning over the tables. It says in one of the gospels, I think it's in the gospel of John, it says he fashioned a whip, right? He made a whip and he drove out all of the animals and he drove out all of the people buying and selling. And he says, it is written that my house, speaking of the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And this is a really powerful scripture. This is a really powerful um, notion that Jesus brings up here because he's acknowledging an ancient scripture, an ancient passage from one of the prophets, prophet Isaiah, who spoke of what the temple would be. And more so he spoke of who Israel, the people would be. And Jesus is confronting them saying, you have done the opposite. This was meant to be a house of sanctuary and prayer, but you turned it into a den of thieves. Isaiah said, that all people from all nations will come and find refuge in this house. And Jesus, what he's seeing going on right now is he's seeing people being made to buy the opportunity to get forgiveness. And effectively what Jesus is saying in his protest is the system has to be overthrown. The system doesn't work. And I've come to confront the system in all of its inability to, to reveal who God truly is and who we truly are. He's not just angry at people for selling merchandise. This isn't like a, this isn't a reason that you can't have, you know, some products for sale in a church. It's got nothing to do with that. It's much deeper than that. See, Jesus is confronting the systemic problems, the way the system has been built. He's confronting the reality that at its core, it has moved away from what it was meant to be. When Isaiah spoke about a temple, when Isaiah spoke about the people of God, Isaiah said, this will be a place where anyone can come, the exiles, the refugees, the down and outs. No one will be excluded. And Jesus is bearing witness to those very people who don't even have money being forced to then go into debt just to pay for an animal, a pigeon that they could sacrifice to get forgiveness. I mean, think this through. They're living in this perceived spiritual debt, this need for forgiveness. And their only way to achieve forgiveness is through the sacrifice of an animal, but they don't have the money to do that. So then they borrow money to get into, and get into economic debt. Now they're in spiritual and economic debt. And Jesus is looking at this and saying, no, inherently the system is broken. And that's why his teaching about this kingdom is so powerful and provocative because the kingdom isn't a system. Systems are built to make one group more powerful than the other, right? Our human history is decorated 
with the stories of constant tribal warfare, right? One group just trying to be more powerful than the other group. And it goes from everything from conflict on the world stage to what you experienced in your office, you know, this week. The feeling of egotistic, ego-driven ego ambition to be above someone else. And Jesus, Jesus is here to throw it all on its head. Jesus reveals that that system doesn't work and that the answer inherently is his kingdom. Now, this is where peacemaking comes in. Jesus knows that to make peace, you have to confront injustice. And peacemaking isn't the same as peacekeeping. Peacekeeping creates a pseudo peace, right? Peacekeeping, keeping the peace often allows injustice to continue because peacekeeping is often conflict avoidance and sometimes to avoid conflict you compromise your sense of justice and integrity and we have that in our own lives personally day to day you have it in your relationships where something might be said that hurts you and you know it's wrong it was unjust, it was wrong. And there's a part of you that in full integrity knows the right thing to do would be to confront the person about what they said to you. But you wanna keep the peace, AKA avoid the conflict, so you give up the opportunity to bring a sense of restoration to the relationship. And so that lack of healing and that lack of reconciliation only actually creates a broadening gap and margin in the friendship or in the marriage. Jesus is revealing throughout all of his teaching, if you want peace, you have to confront. And confrontation, I know, scares a lot of people. It scares everyone. It scares everyone. But when we help redefine what confrontation truly is and see it not as just warfare, not as disturbance, but actually restoration and reconciliation and an integral part of peacemaking, it does become easier. Jesus was confronting racism. He was confronting perverse power systems. Israel, the leaders of the temple, were allowing some people in and some people out. And the people that didn't look like them, that were from different cultures, that expressed themselves differently, were marginalized. And the people that did look like them and same culture and same practices were welcomed in. And the Isaiah prophecy had, had been all about inclusion. And Jesus is throwing these tables over and confronting that systemic racism and injustice. This is big stuff. But he, he also talks about it earlier on in the gospel in Matthew. It's Matthew 18. He talks about it in community. He says, if you've done something to your brother, or your sister, if you've done something to a friend, go to them and repent. Or even if you sense that someone might be upset with you, go to them and find out. And look, if, if they don't receive it, if they don't hear you, bring someone else along. Jesus understands that to have true peace, we have to confront and I think earlier this year we were confronted with that notion on the world scale I think 2020 has been a year of confrontation around systemic uh, expressions that we've lived with and allowed to exist 
in our lifetimes that have been at the detriment of someone else. When George Floyd was murdered and that video circulated, it was the image of historical prejudice, historical violence, historical evil and injustice that had been there, allowed to fester, allowed to exist, and now everyone was witnessing and acknowledging. And for me, it, it, personally, I, uh, I found it to be incredibly disturbing, not only as you know, you know, the, the, the video itself, not only what we were seeing, but the reality that there had been so many things connected to it, such as history here in England that I was unaware of. This year has been a year of reconciling so much, understanding the experience of the black community here in Britain. And that's been birthed from a video in America. There's been this confrontation that hopefully is creating a level of peace and restoration in society that is long overdue. And don't get me wrong, this, this, is, not, this is not gonna happen overnight. Um, but I know for many of you, myself included, there has been a great level of education and awakening that's happened this year, a great level of confrontation. If you haven't engaged in that conversation because perhaps it's felt bewildering and overwhelming for you, I encourage you to recognize that before this year ends, you can. <laughs> There's still time. There's still time to let this year end as 2020, clear vision, confronting us with the things that we've needed to see. If you're British listening to this, I recommend you buy and read the book, Why I'm No Longer Talking About Race to White People by Renier Lodge. I encourage you to find places where you can educate yourself, where you confront systemically what's been wrong for so long. Without confrontation, we don't have true peace. And when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God, he's saying to do the work of peacemaking is to be in the family business. <laughs> That's what we do. To be a son, to be a daughter of God is to be a peacemaker. So when you make peace, when you make peace, you continue the family, the family business. And that's the thing about peace. It has to be made. It doesn't happen passively. It doesn't just exist. It doesn't just appear. It's something that we have to fight for. See, when Jesus turned the tables in the temple, it was specific. It was unique to that moment. It was acknowledging the specific injustices of that situation. But it was also a much larger metaphor for the human condition. The Apostle Paul goes on to write in the book of Corinthians, did you not know that your body is a temple of the divine spirit? Did you not know that your body is a temple? What Jesus is doing here is he's saying within us, there are systems, there are expressions of injustice that need to be overthrown. You know, I went on tour once with a band and 
they were a pretty well-known band and I was just supporting them. So I had a load of time in the cities just to wander around. And I went to this cathedral in one of the cities that we were in and it had been built in the 10th century and it was just stunning. And I walked up and down this cathedral and that, that verse was just ringing in my mind. Your body is a temple. And this temple that I was in, this cathedral, you know, it had existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. The 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century. This, these bricks and mortar have stood there revealing the majesty and glory of God, this place of worship, this sanctuary of refuge. And I thought that's what the Apostle Paul is saying about us, that we are temples. And could it be that there's something of us, like this physical cathedral that could live on well beyond our time if we steward ourselves and we live our lives like the temples we're called to be? Temples, cathedrals like that live on because they're stewarded and they're kept and they're maintained. And when we're called temples, we're called into this Isaiah prophetic word of what it means to be a space of refuge and sanctuary for the outcast and a place of worship and reverence. That's ultimately what it means to be human is to be someone who facilitates both the work of justice and restoration and also the expression of exaltation and worship. And if we can move in those two attributes and two expressions, then perhaps what we'll do in our lives will live on and exist for a time great, greater than our days on earth. And we know that to be true when we look at the history books. And we see people like Martin Luther King and their stories living on beyond their days. That's like a temple. I know in hundreds of years, the words of Martin Luther King will still ring out. I know that the work of those who fight for justice and restoration live on beyond their time. Martin Luther King said, I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into the hell of nuclear destruction. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. Martin Luther King knew that the way to peace was confrontation, but it wasn't violence. It's when I was talking a few weeks ago about the difference between retribution and restoration. If you want to restore, you have to confront where the erosion has begun. That isn't license for violence. It isn't license for, for rage. It is a commissioning for ultimate restoration and redemption. And when we acknowledge that we are the temple, we get to participate in the daily overthrowing of the tables within our souls. Where in our lives are we building systems that favors one type of person over the other? Where do we show grace to one person, but not to another? Where do we find it easier to include someone who looks like us, sounds like us, is interested in what we're interested in, and yet find it easy to exclude someone who doesn't? Where have we made God in our image who looks like us, speaks like us, 
dresses like us. Just picture for a moment someone from a different race to you. Someone from a different culture to you. A man or a woman. Just, just let, them, let them be created in your imagination right now. And just imagine that that image in your mind is the image of God. Imagine that's what God looks like. Because that's what Jesus is asking us to do. When we can see the divine blueprint in every person, then there is no one that we could treat without the dignity that they deserve. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the sons of God, Jesus was saying, when you view everyone as a child of God, you will make peace. You will make peace. You can't treat someone with divine DNA and not bring restoration and hope and forgiveness and justice into their life. But when you mark some people as divine divinely created and some people as less than, you will continue the systems of separation and injustice and exclusion. If you grew up in a religious system, you will have subversively, you will have very subtly come to group people in and out. That's just what happens. We get to change those systems. We get to change those expressions. What if we went into our day declaring every single person we meet today has divine DNA and are worthy of being treated like that's the truth? There's a prayer Jesus taught his followers. It's a prayer you've, you've probably heard before. It's become known as the Lord's Prayer. And it's so powerful. It's the prayer that I use to most and I quickly and authentically access the part of my heart that perhaps has become numb, that, that needs awakening. There's a great theologian writer called uh, Ron Rollheiser, and he's done his kind of own version of this prayer. And it just, it awakens something in me every time I read it. And I want to close this episode, Blessed are the Peacemakers, by reading it to you. So, hey, let's pray together. Our Father, who always stands with the weak, the powerless, the poor, the abandoned, the sick, the aged, the very young, the unborn, and those who, by victim of circumstance, beat the heat of day, who are in heaven, where everything will be reversed, where the first will be last and the last will be first, but where all will be well, and every manner of being will be well. Hallowed be thy name. May we always acknowledge your holiness, respecting that your ways are not our ways, your standards are not our standards. May the reverence we give your name pull us out of the selfishness that prevents us from seeing the pain of our neighbor. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Open our freedom to let you in so that the complete mutuality that characterizes your life might flow through our veins and thus the life that we help generate 
may radiate your equal love for all and your special love for the poor. On earth as it is in heaven, may the work of our hearts, the temples and structures we build in this world reflect the temple and the structure of your glory so that the joy, graciousness, tenderness and justice of heaven will show forth within all the structures of earth. Give life and love to us and help us to always see everything as a gift. Help us to know that nothing comes to us by right and that we must give because we have been given to. Help us realize that we might give to the poor not because they need it, but because our own health depends upon our giving to them, us. The truly pure, plural us. Give not just to our own, but to everyone, including those who are very different than the narrow us. Give your gifts to all of us equally this day, not tomorrow. Do not let us push things off into some indefinite future so that we can continue to live justified lives in the face of injustice because we can make good excuses for our inactivity, our daily bread so that each person in the world may have enough food, enough clean water, enough clean air, adequate health care, and sufficient access to education, so as to have sustenance for a healthy life. Teach us to give them from our sustenance and not just from our surplus. And forgive our sins. Forgive our blindness towards our neighbor, our self-preoccupation, our racism, and our incurable prosperity to worry only about ourselves and our own. Forgive us our capacity to watch the evening news and do nothing about it. Do not put us to the test. Do not judge us only by whether we have fed the hungry, given clothing to the naked, visited the sick, or tried to mend the systems that victimize the poor. Spare us this test. For none of us can stand before your gospel scrutiny. Give us instead more days to mend our ways, our selfishness and our systems. Deliver us from evil. That is from the blindness that let us continue to participate in anonymous systems within which we need not see who gets less as we get more. Blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God.